now we'd like to read this morning the Word of God. If you could stand with me as we honor God in the reading of His Word. There are three readings this morning, and the first comes from Exodus 25. And so I invite you to turn to Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. It says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Then Exodus 40, verses 16 to 33. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in front of the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil and burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed, as the Lord commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. And I will be reading Hebrews 9, 1 to 14. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables or in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. 
Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the intentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from, from dead works to serve the living God. Amen. Amen. Sarah and Brian, thank you so much. We're just so excited for this season ahead, and thank yeah. you for sharing a bit of your story today. So there'll be more instructions to come from Denny on uh, continuing to call this couple. You know, I had to exercise great restraint this week in not having uh, Exodus 28 on the skillfully woven priestly garments uh, read publicly, one of my favorite chapters. No, I'm kidding. Um, so we come to, I think, a surprising text in a lot of ways that Exodus makes a dramatic turn. Again, not one filled so much with mystery and drama, uh, but one that's surprising at this point. If you think up to now, the, the text has moved at a fairly good pace. We've know that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. There's been the calling of Moses. There's been the showdown with Pharaoh. There have been the plagues, which we know as judgments. There's been the Passover, the temptations in the desert, the great scene at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. You think a lot has happened in 24 chapters. And then we get to chapter 25. And if you'll notice at the top of your notes, really today, I, I blocked off 13 chapters, uh, really the last 16 chapters. There's a few in the middle where we're closed down in the upcoming weeks, but it's a large section of text. And what this is about is God commissioning a tent, what we know as the tabernacle. And if you look again at what was read, Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, this is God speaking to Moses, still on Mount Sinai, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, that is, God's revealed a plan for it, and all of its furniture, this Moses you shall do. Then at the very end of Exodus, you notice the last chapter, this Moses did. According to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. And in Exodus 39 and 40, that's the refrain. Moses did exactly as God commanded with the tabernacle. So if you'll notice, you know, this week you read this long portion of text. Chapters 35 to 40 mirror 
chapters 30, uh, 25 to 31. Chapters 25 to 31 are the instructions for this tabernacle. Chapters 35 to 40 are then in the past tense that Moses has completed this project exactly as God has said. Now the question we're left with today, why does God preserve 13 chapters on the dimensions and the accoutrements of a portable tent? I mean, the Bible is not that big of a book. It's a God's revealed word, and yet we have so much devoted to something that we'd be very quick to say, you know what, this doesn't have anything to do with me. I come to church, so I get some practical nuggets, uh, you know, to carry on my life. You know, maybe you'd be a bit better family guy. What does this have to do with me? And I hope today what we'll see is importantly that God's desire is to dwell with and among his people and maybe more crucially for us, that he does this in the setting of the local church. So those are the moves we'll make today. And a little bit different outline uh, than normal. It'll kind of go A, B, A, B. So we'll look at the tabernacle, who's to be stewards of the tabernacle, and then see how these relate to the church, the temple and the priesthood again. So A, B, A, B. So first notice, God commissions the tabernacle for a definite purpose. Again, take a look at 25 and verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary so that, there's your purpose clause, so that I might dwell in their midst. That God's plan all along is to be among his people. Take a look, same chapter, verse 22, right? This is talking about later where the Ark of the Covenant is. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. How about chapter 29 from verse 42? This tent of meeting before the Lord, will I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified to my glory. So God makes it very clear. You're going to build this thing because it's going to be a special place where I dwell. Now, you're, at, you're, you're, you're all good theologians here. You say, again, there's an objection. Say, I thought God's everywhere. Uh, God's omnipresent. So you could ask it this way. Is there any, any place we can go where God couldn't find us? Is there any place on his globe, you know, you kind of, you know, go off to a remote place where there's no cell phone reception and sneak behind a cleft in the rock and say, well, God can't see me. And say, no, we know that. Not only does not God know where we are, that he's everywhere, he knows the very thoughts in our minds, so what gives? Why would God commission a tent and say, I'm going to dwell in the tent? You see, friends, that it's always been the whole plan, really, you have to ask this question, why would God create humans in the first place? Say, God made us that we might live in relationship to him to bring him glory and to flourish under his kingship. Say, think of the bookends of the bible if you will so just the first couple pages of the bible there's a pristine garden and in that setting that god and humans would walk and have fellowship together that god would be glorified by his people who would obey and in return that the people would say this is actually you know this is what uh, maslow would call self-actualization that actually i'm flourishing under the leadership of god there's fellowship and that garden sounds a lot like a temple that god and man are dwelling together but what happens first our first parents say no thanks to god i don't want to be accountable to god i want to do what i want to do and that relationship is fractured 
And so the rest of the Bible is about God's game plan of redemption, that God in his kindness inaugurates a game plan to gather a people for himself, right? To bear witness to who he is, to live in fellowship with him. That's what the Bible's about until you get to the other bookend of the Bible, Revelation 21. The very end of the Bible, what do you have? You have the eternal city where, where all the people of God, and it's described as a cube. And if you read about the eternal, say it, it sounds the way it's described, it's a lot like a temple, God and his people are in fellowship together. The people are with him, that all the sin has been expunged, that God's their maker, there's perfect fellowship. You can put bookends on the Bible. God wants to be with his people. He's made us for his glory. And in the end, when Christ Jesus returns, that all of us will be with him in this new heavens and new earth, which is a temple. So the rest of the Bible is about God redeeming a people for himself and wanting to be with them. You know, all of us now at a time, I think a good word is estrangement. Instead of having fellowship with God and fellowship with our neighbor, we're estranged because of our selfishness and our sin. So how God, how's God going to buy us back? And we get a foreshadow of that in the tabernacle. So notice this tabernacle too, really from chapters 26 as it's described. We'll get a diagram in a moment. But do we have any modern equivalent of this? I mean, things with courtyards and precious stones and, you know, descriptions of very, very expensive furnishings. And say, I think we do, actually. I think it would remind us of a monarch's court. That if you go to the old world, one of the great tourist attractions, undoubtedly, is where the monarch resides. You say, why do you go where the monarch resides? Because it looks a little bit different. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary structure that the furnishings are a bit different. It's, it's the place of the king or the queen. And so it is with this tabernacle. It's a royal court. It's going to be a place set up especially where God meets with the people. If I could have one definition of the tabernacle that I'd like everyone to remember, remember to say it's the, the point of intersection between heaven and earth. It's where God most obviously would come down and say, I desire, I've given you the law, I don't just give laws, but I want to dwell with you, I want you to obey me and be in fellowship with me, and as you take this traveling tent, I'm going to be with you in a special way because you're my people. So the tabernacle is the place where heaven and earth meet at a point, the meeting point of God and man. Remember that, the tabernacle as the meeting point of God and man. So what about it? Let's have a look. Will you Take yourselves back, if you could imagine this. You're in the desert of the Sinai Peninsula, and you're traveling around, and here's this tent that's been commissioned. Try to picture what you'd see. We have a diagram to help. Ruth, we could have that first picture. So the first thing you'd notice is this outer curtain, that the outer curtain would just separate the courtyard of the tabernacle, and every Israelite was allowed inside uh, that courtyard. But notice what you'd first see. Tabernacle, just like the Garden of Eden, faces east, and so you'd walk in from the east, and the first thing that you could not miss was a giant altar. And on this altar, two times a day, first thing in the morning, there would have been a lamb sacrificed, and the last thing at night, a lamb would have been sacrificed. Two times a day, every single day, say, why is that? How'd you answer that? You go to church a long time, you say, somebody picks up their Bible, say, I'm reading about this thing called the tabernacle, and you walk in the curtain, and there's an altar there. I mean, how weird is that? What would you say? Say, well, those sacrifices were reminders to the people of who God was and who they were. That they were imperfect people. You remember last week we talked about the defining of the relationship in Exodus 24? Do you remember what God lays out as law? Do you remember what the people say? Everything God says, we'll do. 
we'll obey God perfectly. Say we can't obey God perfectly because there's a disease at play in all of us, the disease of sin and rebellion. And so that's why the center of this courtyard, really the dominant feature in the courtyard, would have been an altar for sacrifices to remind the people that God is holy, that we're sinners, and that sin has to be dealt with. You say, you ever think about that too? I encounter a lot of people and they, you know, say, okay, you know, God, man, I get it. God, people, you know, we're, we're not God. God's perfect and, you know, there's sin and we don't always get it right and we've, some things we're embarrassed about, but can't we just forget about it? I mean, can't we just have forgiveness by fiat? I mean, why do we need these dramatic displays? Well, God would be very disappointing if he didn't deal with the rebellion of his creation. And so the altar of sacrifice was just this kind of reminder. So you come in the curtain, and there it is. The smell of lambs. The gruesomeness of slaughter. God's holy. We're not. The sacrifices are how we're really connected to him, able to to meet with him. Second thing you would have seen, a little bit smaller there, in between the altar of sacrifice and the tent itself, would have been a laver, a basin, a bronze basin. Say the basin, too, was for the purification of the priest. Did you catch that in chapter 40? That it's the place where the priests would have to ritually wash themselves. Again, not a hygiene issue. We think hygiene issue. It's not a hygiene issue, but it's a symbolic gesture to remind, say, going into this tent was a big deal. Again, about the holiness of God. And then if you enter the tent itself, if we can go to the next slide, Ruth, say there's kind of a different angle, and one more will give us the close-up. We could there. So that first rectangular room that would have been covered uh, all around, with, this time with the roof of curtains, that this is just called the holy place. Now inside the holy place, and by the way, only the priests could go in the holy place. So any Israelite can be in the courtyard, but when it comes to that first rectangle of the tent, tent only the priests could go in there. And the, there's a couple of pieces of furniture there. Say on the right side, or the north side, you would have had something called the table for the bread of presence. You say, what do you mean the table? Well, there's 12 loaves of bread inside there. They're always freshly baked loaves of bread inside the tent. You say, why? You know, I mean, how pagan? What is God getting hungry in there? Say, no. That the bread of presence was a reminder of God's provision. I bet you might think that's weird, but I bet you don't. And another angle, say, how many of us do you pray before a meal? So you go to lunch afterwards and you're those who, we Christians, we bow our heads, say, God, thank you for providing for us. You're a God of provision. I don't have this meal because I'm a swell guy and I've worked harder than the others, but I have this because you've been incredibly kind to me, God. And so the table of the bread of presence was a reminder of God's provision. Now, across from that, now, you'll see in, in Exodus 25 to 31, this is just called the lampstand. And the lampstand comes into English from the Hebrew. You probably are a step ahead of me. You remember, it's, called, it's a menorah. That inside this holy place, opposite the table of the bread of presence, would have been a constantly lit lampstand, by far the most valuable piece of furniture in there, because it's made of solid gold. Lit and described as a tree. And again, why is it lit all the time? I mean, what effort to keep this lamp and all the, you know, in these days, bringing in the oil, constantly lit, the seven parts of the candle. Why? Because it's a reminder that God is our light, that God is vigilant. He never sleeps. He protects us. 
There's no time where God is off twiddling his thumbs. Well, God, my life's so hard. Have you forgotten about me? May it not be. Because the lampstand is there, that God is present, that he is light. The last thing in that holy place that you would have seen would be the altar of incense against that next curtain. And the incense probably was as the incense would rise up, it shows the prayers of the people that God hears. That as we think about God and call on God, just as that incense goes up, so our prayers go up and he hears the cries of his people. So every bit of these furnishings where God says, I need you to make these exactly as I tell you. And I need you to preserve them and maintain them and make sure they're there exactly as I tell you. Why? Because they have something important to say about the God of the universe and how he dwells among his people. Now the last part of the tabernacle is that inner part past the second curtain. We then move from what's called the holy place, where all the priests can go, to what is called the most holy place. Or some of us know that as the holy of holies. The most holy place. Now, how many people could go in there? One person, the high priest. You remember how often he could go in there? One day a year. One man, one day a year inside that second tent. And in there, there's one piece of furniture. That one piece of furniture is the Ark of the Covenant. You say, it's hard not to think of Spielberg here, isn't it? You say, Spielberg got a lot right, actually, so... You know what I'm talking about. Raiders of the Lost Ark, of course. The Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark are the ten laws, right? The Decalogue etched by the finger of God. And on the top of this Ark is a special Ark cover called the Mercy Seat. And on that Mercy Seat, God says this is the actual throne of God. Uh, where he dwells most intimately is on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So that high priest would go in once a year and sprinkle blood on top of the, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing, again, the cleansing of sin, the forgiveness of sin on behalf of the people. Now, what do you make of this ancient Near Eastern architecture? Say, so you want to slip out, don't you? No, I hope not. You say it communicates these two truths we looked at all through Exodus. On the one hand, say God, God's near. He's going to dwell among his people. It's the tabernacle is the place where the God of heaven is going to intersect and be a special reminder. It's a symbol. God is with us. He's working in and through us. God's on the move among his people. He's right there. And yet there are all these barriers. Sacrifice, washings, curtains, restrictions, all communicating God is powerfully different. That's what the temple is. That's what the tabernacle is, which will later become the temple. So God commissioned the tabernacle as his special dwelling place. It is the place on the earth where God and man meet. Now, who's going to run the show here? I talked a lot about, you know, or a little bit about the bread of presence and this menorah and the sacrifices. Who's going to do all this? You'll notice he commissions priests. Aaron, Moses' brother, so this would be, say, take... For example, chapter 28, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as the priests. There's going to be a special class of Israelites to oversee the tabernacle and later the temple. And two, two things I'd like us to notice here. This is be Exodus chapters 28 and 29. We'll take them in turn. <laughs> Chapter 28, I joked about it, but the priests' garments. 
God gives great details about what these priests are to wear. You see the gentleman up front there. You say, I'm thinking I could get used to that, all that elaborate. Uh, no, that'd be very cumbersome. But you'll notice there are fine jewels. There's a turban. Why does God do this? Why does he dress his priests in such a way that seems so bizarre? And here, here's the reason why. The priests were different as mediators. To be the go-between between the God of the universe and the people, you had to say that's a different kind of a job, isn't it? To be in the presence of you say, I, I don't know about that job. And the priests would be, you know, fashioned in such a way where you'd say that guy doesn't dress like anybody else because mediating... Mediating is a special job. The priest would represent God to the people and in turn represent the people before God. So the priest's garments are different to communicate that this is a special job to go in and offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. Second thing about these priests, crucially now chapter 29, so chapter 28 about the expensive outfit of the priests. Chapter 29 then about the purification rituals of the priests. The priests had to do a lot in order to conduct these sacrifices. They themselves needed atonement through sacrifices. This is because, friends, priests were normal men. It wasn't as if God here says, you know what, that bloodline in Aaron is a little less sinful than the bloodlines of all the other Israelites, so, you know, Aaron's kind of earned this, and he's a little bit, no. God in his kindness sets up Aaron and the Levites to oversee the temple, and they too, like all people, are sinners. And so they need the special efforts to consecrate and purify themselves. So have a look at 29 and verse 19. You shall take the other ram, so another animal sacrifice, and Aaron and his sons, these priests, shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of his right hands and on the great toes of his right feet. Can you think, what? why? Can you see what's happened here? These priests mediating between the God of the universe who's holy and Sinful men who are definitely on the side of sinful men, not on the side of God. You say, why do you think? How would you answer that? Again, you've been coming to church a long time. A non-Christian opens up the Bible and says, I found this very weird passage in your Bible, in Exodus 29, and they're rubbing blood on the priests, on their ears and on their hands and on their feet. Why are they doing that? It's because that symbolized that blood. Think of what they're doing. They're putting their hands on the head of that ram, and that ram would be slaughtered. Pretty gruesome. And the priest is thinking, you know what? I'm a sinner. And if I face the judgment of God, is he going to overlook my sin? You say, no, God's dealt with it, and he's allowed me to have a sacrificial substitute in this ram. And so symbolically, the sin of the priest is transferred to the animal, and that that animal would die as a substitute for the sin of the priest as they prepare to go meet God, their maker. Can you see that? That identification, they're putting their hands right on the ram. And then that blood, you see where it goes? On the ear? Why is that? Priests need to hear from God. Say, priest just doesn't do whatever he wants to do. Say, well, I think it'd be good to worship God this way and comes up with a new clever invention of how to do it. Say, no, the priest's ears 
Help my ears to hear you, God. The hands of the priests sprinkled on blood. Why? Because the work of the hands. How much did the priest need to use his hands, right, for the animal sacrifices, for handling the menorah and the oil and the bread of presence and opening the curtain and so forth, that these hands better be sanctified to you, Lord. They better be consecrated for you because I know I do great damage with these hands and have done great damage with these hands. Set them apart for you, Lord, and my feet. Oh, boy, my feet taking me somewhere where I have not been pleasing to the Lord. I've gone places that have been shameful. Say, Lord, may my feet be set apart for your purposes. Can you see that? The priest, a sinner like everybody else, but he's got quite a task to intervene. He's got to officiate the temple. So God called priests to oversee the tabernacle. So the tabernacle, God's special dwelling place where heaven and earth meet, the priests to do the work in the temple as fallen men through purification rituals. So now this leaves us with the, the final question where we need to land today. It's this. Why don't we do any of this? Where's the temple? Why wasn't Austin out there, out front, sacrificing the lamb this morning and this evening? And as I say, good thing we're calling Brian Patchinger so I can have some relief from offering the lamb sacrifice. No, we say we don't do that. Where's the tent? Where are the priests? Where's the altar? Where are the curtains? Where's the lampstand? Where's the bread of presence? We just forget about this whole thing? Is there a sacred place for the people of God? Well, I can think of no better help on this answer than John chapter 1. And I could make an argument, I think, you say if you had to choose one verse in all holy writ, you know, for being crucially important, I think John 1.14 would be pretty high on my list. John begins his biography of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then chapter 1 and verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, if you listen to that verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I'll tell you something that in graduate school, you know, you're stumbling through this in Greek. The Greek tutors were absolutely adamant that that verb in 114 that we get as dwelt, that we translated that as pitched his tent. Because the verb there is tabernacled. That John would say to you and to me, to everyone who's ever heard this, that the word of God in the Lord Jesus came and dwelt and tabernacled among the people. Why don't we have a tent anymore and all these rituals and without priests? Because God put forth Jesus as the place where God and man intersect. How do we know God wants to be among his people? Because he put forth his only son and in the person of Jesus, you say that's where heaven and earth meet. And if you press this a bit further, so Jesus comes, he tabernacles and pitches his tent among his people. Then we read something like John 14 and verse 23, and Jesus says, whoever surrenders to me, I actually dwell inside them. And then we take one further move to Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 18. For through him we both have access to the one spirit of the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And listen to this. In whom 
the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What's Paul saying there? That Jesus is the cornerstone of the church and that God would be at work among his people, that he's building us into a spiritual temple. Where's the sacred place now? It's not in architecture. It's not in building materials. But it is, friends, in the gathered church. Which is why this makes such a challenging time in which we live because you know what we've been through a lot of people have said like we've said in a lot of our jobs well you know i can work just as effectively from home as i can in the office space and it's a lot more convenient to watch the pastor on demand than it is to you know get up and and go what do you think about that i ask you what you think god wants to intersect and be at work among his people in a special way in Jesus, he's dwelled among us, that he in his spirit then dwells in each one of us, and we, we're told, are being molded into a spiritual temple so that the nations might come to see the Lord Jesus at work. Friends, the tabernacle, the tent, is not about ancient Near Eastern architecture. It's a signpost to the Lord Jesus. It's a big blinking sign. There's one who's going to come and fulfill all this. So it's not in a specific location wandering around the desert, but rather it's in the life of the surrendered one before Jesus. As we surrender to him, we become his holy temple, that we're the place where God is on the move, that he works in and through his people to advance his kingdom. We're the temple, and we're that spiritual building. Lastly, then, what about the priests? We don't have priests. Did you catch the second reading in Hebrews 9? Christ is the high priest. But unlike the priests of old who needed to do all those purification rituals, they needed to go and put the blood on their ear and wash their hands and go to the labor and do all that to dramatize that God is holy, our new high priest, he doesn't do any of that. Because he, unlike any other human priest or pastor, is perfect and sinless, and in fact, God himself. So when he enters the Holy of Holies, right, he doesn't bring the blood of goats, but rather it's with his own blood that he did that, that he as a mediator is our perfect mediator, and there's no need for those rituals, that Christ is the great high priest. You don't need to come through the clergy anymore. But you as Jesus, as Jesus followers, as Christ followers, have that high priest bearing witness in your soul that Christ has fulfilled it all. You know, you're not a Christian today. We're glad you're here. There are non-Christians every week, as I say. I always meet you or find out during the week. Very thankful you're here. And right now, I pray you're thinking deeply about this to say, I, is there a God of the universe? Is he just about rules? That's what I've always heard about religion. You know, they just give you rules. Or is there something to this that God actually wants to dwell, to be with his people? to be among his people, to be at work in his people. And could it be to be right with this God that there's something really to Jesus, that I can turn from my sin and my rebellion and doing life on my own terms, that I can surrender to Jesus and say, you know, I do believe you're the Lord of the universe. You're the one perfect person. And quite frankly, as my life, you might say, as my life is going the wrong way, and I'm lonely, and I'm depressed, I'm living for myself. My relationships are a mess. 
Could it be what's really getting in the way? As Brian shared, is there something going on deep inside me that needs to be reversed by a voice from the outside? And today you hear that voice from the outside in the Lord Jesus, come to me. I can forgive you and set you right. You surrender to Christ today. Be grafted into the church family, the spiritual temple. Brothers and sisters, Christians, I know we've heard a lot about the, you know, the need to not be gathered and the dangers of gathering. I get that. My challenge to us today is to see the value of the gathered church, that we haven't invented it out of our own, you know, back pocket to say, wouldn't it be great if we had all the Christians meet on Sunday mornings? No, God set the terms, that these chapters are about God setting the terms, and he tells us he's at work in us. That our hope of bearing witness to Avon and these surrounding communities, as I say, it feels more weeks than, than not. You know, we have a very, very short time to be this church. A very short time, God in his providence, would have us be here and this spot of the globe to bear witness to what he's done through his son. May we gather together, love each other, invest in one another, take up the charge and the mission, not casually. There's no time in our culture now for nonsense. But to be devoted to Jesus and committed to Jesus and committed to his body and this local temple so that his presence might be going, grown, known and magnified. That's what the church is about. And so Christ is our temple. He is our high priest. He's at move among his people. Let's make him famous, I'll pray. Father, thank you, we do thank you for these 13 chapters about the tabernacle and the priests. How easy it would be to just flip over this part of our Bible, say there's nothing practical here. But Lord, help us to see clearly that you've set the terms for worship, that you're not just lawgiver, but there's a relationship here. And in your kindness, even in your perfection and in our sinfulness, that you've made a way through the sacrifice of your son. In the same way the tabernacles and priests are, are living illustrations of who you are and who we are, they're direct signposts to our Lord and Savior. Help us to see Jesus as the all-sufficient Savior. Help us again to see the value in the local church of moving together, of loving one another, of using the diversity of gifts as you would build us up. So we surrender this to you, Lord. Bind us together for Christ's sake. Amen.